the Lord. All right, so now for the rest of us, let's open our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, just to pick up, we usually have a little bit less time to work with on days that we have the Lord's Supper, so we just have a little bit left from the story of what happened at Thessalonica to, to go over today. Chapter 17. Our Father, as we read your word now, I pray that the, the preaching of your word would accomplish whatever purpose you have in the hearers. That you would open the hearts of people who need to be saved to believe. That you would minister to the minds and hearts of Christians who need to grow, that they might grow. But in all things, we pray that the work of the reading and preaching of your word would be manifest and evident in the fruit of the lives of everyone who hears. Let your will be done. Help me to speak and help me and all of us to listen and to receive and give heed to these things. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen. Let me just go ahead and read right from the beginning of the chapter. We covered, I think, probably most of it last week, but listen to this. Acts 17, 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's a nice little summary of the ministry of the gospel in the synagogue, right? I mean, basically two things. The, the, the great offense among the Jews, it, you know, the, the, the great offense was this idea that Messiah was a figure who was going to suffer and die. Right? To this day, that's the great offense. Like, like if you say to like an Orthodox Jew today, look at Isaiah chapter 53. They will say to you, that's not about Messiah. That's about the whole nation of Israel. That, that's how they brush that aside. So Paul was explaining from the scriptures that the mission of Messiah was to suffer and die. That was one of the great offenses to the Jewish people was that you say he's the Messiah, but he died. There's no way Messiah dies. When Messiah comes, he's going to reign, which is true, right? But first he came to die, to pay the price for our sins, and rose from the dead gloriously, victoriously, and he is just waiting for that moment in heaven where he is going to return and then fulfill that other part of his mission. But it's all part of his mission. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was what? Number one, Messiah has to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And number two, Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. Right? Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks. Right, So you had that mixed group in the synagogue again. You had Jewish people, and you had a lot of Gentile people who were God-fearing people. Some of them were people who believed on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Some of them were people who maybe had respect for that God, but not faith in Him, and had 
respect for other Gentile gods as well. You had a whole mix of people in there. And what happens is a great multitude, so it's a big crowd, of devout Greeks, those are the Gentiles in the room, and a few of the leading women, those would be Jewish women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, and that was a significant and influential number as well, the fact that it specifically mentioned leading women believing implies that there would have been women who believed whose husbands did not. Uh, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which is where we'll pick it up next week. So... We went over, I think, pretty thoroughly what happened when uh, he got to Thessalonica and preached for those three consecutive Sabbaths and the great fruit that came out of it and the great opposition that arose because of it. And, and given a little bit of a review there already, looking at verse 5, you see that the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, right? What were they envious of? Well, these were the men who controlled the synagogue. And they were probably very satisfied, uh, perhaps puffed up, and very happy with the fact that they had these big crowds coming and listening to them in their synagogues each week. But here comes Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy. And for just three consecutive Sabbaths, they preach. And lo and behold... There's a whole multitude of people who believe it when these leaders don't. And they're very jealous of the fact that these people are all of these multitudes, including, it seems, some of their own wives and some of the women in their own congregation in the synagogue are believing these missionaries who have come in to preach about Jesus, the Messiah, uh, and they see themselves kind of losing their own influence, and they're jealous over that. Right? Because people are... And you know, that, that kind of shows, like with the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' own day in Judea, it kind of shows the, the condition of the hearts of the people. You can see it, it betrays a very carnal religious spirit, right? It was not about the good of people being reconciled to God. The ministry of the religion, if you want to call it that, was not obviously about really truly trying to point people to God. Otherwise, the religious leadership in these synagogues would have been overjoyed to have had these apostles who came 
performing miracles and signs and wonders and everything else, they would have been overjoyed to see that and to hear that Messiah had come and to have them and, and to be taught from the scriptures that yes, it was Messiah's mission to die and to rise from the dead and that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. They would have been overjoyed. Okay, people, this is what we've been praying for. Okay, people, this is what our ancestors from all the way back when these prophecies about Messiah first started to be made, this is what they've been looking for. Here it is. Here is Jesus, the Messiah. And they had to, they had to like kind of relearn some things because they weren't expecting this die, be buried, rise on the third day, and then leave and go back to heaven. And then have this message of Messiah be preached not just to them, but to all the people of the world, all of the Gentiles. They were completely unprepared for that, even though, as we've seen in many cases, the prophets in the Old Testament foretold that that's exactly what needed to happen. Right? Like I shared last week, just to remind you, even right when Jesus was born, there was Simeon standing in the temple who had been told by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And they bring Jesus in and he sees Jesus. Now your servant can depart in peace. And he talks about a couple of things and he says that Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. So even right when Jesus was on the earth in the temple in Jerusalem, it was stated, he's here to be a light to the Gentiles. So, I mean, people should, the, the nation should have known. But you can see what that dark, cold, lifeless, legalistic, religious, oppressive, you know, kind of lordship over people religious spirit does. Instead of it being about the good of the people, finding God, finding the true path to God, which is through Jesus, and finding the forgiveness of sins and salvation, the only way that it comes, they were jealous. And so they plotted and schemed in very short order to just stop it all. And isn't it amazing how a few of the things in this passage of scripture have strangely close precedence in the passage of scripture we just read at the Lord's Supper, right? Like the stirring up of the crowd and, and the sudden and hypocritical loyalty to Caesar that the religious leaders had, right? Just like when Jesus died, you know, we have no king but Caesar, Anyone who calls himself a king is no friend of Caesar's, the religious leaders said to Pontius Pilate, secretly, of course, hating his guts and wanting him dead and wanting him, all the Romans gone. Suddenly, when it works for them to get this person killed that they want to eliminate, suddenly they're all Caesar-friendly, right? Well, same thing happened in Thessalonica here, right? Incredible. You have Jesus' followers facing the same suffering that Jesus did, which Jesus said would happen, right? Amen? So they were envious and they took evil men from the marketplace. That's not the first time we've seen that, that the Jewish religious leaders were able to go and round up, you know, neighborhood toughs, I guess. Evil men, it says, evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob 
set all the city in an uproar, and then they attack the house of this poor guy, Jason, right? A Jewish man, uh, a common name for Jewish men in the dispersion back in that day, uh, supposing that Paul and Silas and um, Luke and Timothy were staying there, which apparently they weren't, right? But this was maybe one of the prominent men from the synagogue, They go and they attack his house and they sought to bring him out, but they don't find them there. So what do they do? They dragged. The idea is physically, right? It's not just a a euphemism for forced him or compelled him. They literally laid hands on him. And they dragged him and some brethren, brethren referring to the fact that Jason and the people in his house were believers, So, listen, they've been believers for a couple of weeks and they're suffering physical persecution in their hometown. Physical persecution that was not stirred up by a hostile government, but physical persecution that was stirred up by their own synagogue leaders. You see that? And they they dragged them out. They dragged them to the rulers of the city. And they cried out, and here comes that, uh, that sudden and fake and hypocritical love for Caesar just used to manipulate this mob. These, and look at this nice testimony in the beginning of it though. These who have turned the world upside down, stop there. Amen. Yeah, amen. Whether you love Christianity or not, it's still turning the world upside down. Amen. You and I are called to be part of flipping the world upside down. Listen, the world right side up is depraved and lost. The world right side up is condemned and will be destroyed. And all of its inhabitants will be judged. Flipped upside down is a good description. Because that's what Christianity does. It calls people to humility. It calls people to repentance. It warns people of the judgment of a righteous God and points them to the only path of redemption that there is, which is through what God did when He gave Jesus His Son. Amen? I love that. So they got that right. They had flipped the world upside down and and that flipping is still going on later. You and I are privileged to still be part of that if we will pray and we will be faithful. Amen? So they, uh, they continue to say, they've come here too. Jason has harbored them, which we don't know if that's actually true or not, because when they searched out his house, they didn't find them there. And then I love this. These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, like they care about that. Saying there's another king, Jesus. right? And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things. So, verse 9, So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The idea is this. Security would be probably a significant amount of money. A significant amount of money along with the pledge that you're not harboring these guys. You're not working with these guys. You're not helping these guys. Right, Jason? Right? So, What would have happened, of course, is if they were found later to actually be harboring these guys, they would have lost the money that was made in the pledge 
And who knows what else would have happened to them as well. Possibly worse. So that really puts them in what situation? It puts the Christians in the situation where if Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke stay around, it's actually endangering them. So you see what they do in verse 10. The brethren immediately, it was very hasty. It was like, listen, we love you guys. We'll never forget what you did. The thing that you've started here is a great move of God. We're going to continue to hold on to this faith. We're going to continue to gather and meet and assemble and worship as a church. We are going to continue to invite people in and reach out with the gospel. But obviously God wants you to go somewhere else. Because if you stay here, you're going to be killed. We're going to be killed. And the ministry is going to stop. So you need to go. And so with haste, with haste, they leave. Immediately, they sent Paul and Silas away. Look, by night. Had to send them by night. Because if they were seen associating with them, they were in a lot of trouble. Now, that's as far as that passage goes. And then they end up in Berea, which is what we'll look at next week. But what I want to do with you for just a few minutes here together today is point out to you the obvious, which you shall already know. The abruptness here of being part of what for three Sabbaths was a thriving ministry, but then forced to hastily at night leave, left Paul especially, we know from his writings, but probably the other three guys too, left them with a real, maybe troubling in their spirit, troubling in their heart. They were concerned for these brethren who loved them. I mean, what happened in Philippi was beautiful and wonderful, right? And they were persecuted out of there as well. But that's a very small group. This became a very large group of people in Thessalonica. It's described as a multitude. So there's a lot of people who have become their brethren. And they love their brethren. And they've had to leave. They had to leave at a time when they knew that their brethren were in danger. I want you to think about that perspective for a moment. That the missionary who goes into a land and preaches the gospel to people, you know, we really don't... I mean, what The American Christian experience is so soft compared to what you read in the Bible, right? And to what happens in other places in the world. We go out and we witness to people. And if they don't listen, we say, God bless you, and we leave and they have a nice day, and that's it. And then we go home. We come to church together on Sunday, and we gather, and we're free this is wonderful, it's beautiful, and when it's done, we go home, we go out to lunch, we relax, we enjoy it, whatever. And it's so comfortable that it even gets viewed as like an optional activity, and people will skip it, they'll blow it off, they'll, they'll go and do other things and everything else. You read about like churches like in Afghanistan, and not just Afghanistan. Yeah, I was reading about Afghanistan. Do you know, you know that Christians dying in Afghanistan happened under the American-backed government too? Like, like Christians dying now that the Taliban has taken over, that's not new, right? That was already going on. It may, be, it may be going on with a little more press coverage now. But the one thing, one of the worst things in the world that goes on that the media never gives any attention to is the persecution of Christians. But it goes on like so much that... And since we don't experience it in the ways and to the degree that it happens in other places in the world, we kind of get a little blind eye to it, you know? But it's like, 
you know, the, the, the Christians, they suffer and they struggle. And this, 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 this experience is like when a missionary goes into a place and preaches the gospel, that missionary knows he's wanting those people to get saved, but he's endangering their lives at the same time, as well as his own. It's not just the missionary who's in danger. It's the people who even just stop and listen to him might be in danger. You see that reading in the book of Acts. You see that in the world today. And yet God strengthens them and God uses them. Even in their deaths, God is glorified. You know, we often pray for Christians in hostile places, and we should. Boy, should we ever, right? But I really have come to understand that, you know, I don't feel worthy to like untie their sandals, you know what I mean? Because of how much they suffer and how little I do. I mean, even if I tried to make myself suffer and just be obnoxious on purpose, people would still probably basically leave us alone, right? The best thing you can do to honor suffering Christians is to listen, everyone. Listen, listen. Use the freedom that we have that they don't. To the full. To serve Jesus. We do the opposite. That's the American way. We use our freedom for our comfort. And for our pleasure. You know what though? It shouldn't surprise us. Because when you read through the book of Acts. What happens when Christianity is persecuted? Thrives. It grows. What happens when Christianity is in a place where it's just free and easy? It's dead. Man, the love for Jesus of Christians that suffer in places where it's like, if you continue to assemble with one another, we're going to kill you. Kill me. That's what they do. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have that in me. I don't know if you think you have that in you. And it's not a competition. God is sovereign. And God has his people here and his people there such as please him. God knows what he's doing. It's not a pity party. It's not self-flagellation. It's not feeling sorry for yourself. But I will tell you this. The knowledge that we have brothers and sisters who live in places where they can die for their faith ought to wake us up a little bit and realize that the freedom that we have isn't freedom to just go and do whatever you want and kind of squeeze church into your life when you feel like it. We have brothers and sisters who just within the past weeks, months, and years have died for doing what you're doing right now. Yes, assembling. And we turn around and we say, well, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. How does that work? How does that work that there are people in the world who their lives are in danger and they'll gather anyway and if they die, they say amen. And yet here, we make every imaginable excuse in the world to tell people why we don't need to do the things that they do and die for. How does that work? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. When you turn your brain on, what you realize is something's wrong here. We pray for them, but they've got something that we don't. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes a letter to these people. 
probably just months later. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I've got about 10 minutes left with you here. And in those 10 minutes, I want to take you on a real quick zoom through the first thing that he wrote to them. They wrote a second letter as well and just don't have time to give you all that today. Early in the pandemic, we went verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians, I think, didn't we? So Paul and his team are hastily chased out of Thessalonica, but they're grieved by that. So Paul does what the Lord had him do prolifically. He writes to them. And aren't we the blessed beneficiaries of that? That we get to read what Paul wrote to these persecuted Christians. Paul did not know. 1 Thessalonians makes it clear. Paul did not know if the church even survived after he left. Right? You know, there was a great pullout from Thessalonica. And then there was this great wondering. There was no CNN or Fox News to report anything. There was this great wondering... What happened to the church? And we're told in 1 Thessalonians that Paul, when he couldn't take it anymore, when he, was, when he finally made it to Athens, he dispatched Timothy and he sent him back to Thessalonica, probably to sneak into the city at night to see if they were still doing okay. Timothy finds out that they are, and they're actually doing well. Timothy goes back and catches up with Paul, and Paul writes them this letter. Let me give you a, a survey a sampling of some of the things that Paul wrote to them. I'll try to do it fast. I wrote down five things. I don't know if I've got time for all of them. but I think I read this last week, but I want to read it again. Chapter 1. I call this, I call this little section of the sermon beautiful encouragement. Beautiful encouragement. Chapter 1 and verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. May I say to you, in addition to prayers, that's what persecuted Christians want to hear. They want to hear, we thank God for you, we thank God because of the work of your faith, the labor of your love, the patience of your hope in the midst of all of the stuff that you're going through. Amen. Knowing your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance of that. There's one of the marks of a believer, man. They are just filled with assurance about the faith. It's not that we don't battle and struggle. It's not that maybe we don't have a little self-doubt. But man, the Lord, you know, I believe, help my unbelief, right? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord brings us through that. But man, we have, even in my hardest moments, I have so much confidence that the gospel is real. And that the Bible is real. And all of this is real and true. It's like, it's like asking me, is, is this thing right in front of me right now? Of course it is. It's real, Right? Much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Right? They didn't receive the word in comfort. 
Make it as easy and convenient as possible. Make it so that you don't even have to lift a finger to be part of it. None of that. We came preaching to people for whom it was hard to listen and believe. And you believed it. With joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became... This is, this is the glory. You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Right? They became... Listen, they went from no knowledge of Christ to, in a very short time, examples to everyone all through Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Corinth was. Right? Amazing. For the word, for from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen? That's encouragement, right? Beautiful encouragement. In other words, point number one, he encourages them because of the genuineness of their faith, the assurance of their faith. He encourages that. Let me fly through this. Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 10. What else does he write to them? Chapter 2 and verse 10. Your witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the second encouragement is what? The first encouragement was the genuineness of their faith. I want you to know you receive the word in much affliction and we can see you're the real thing and you're an example to everybody else. The second thing is encouragement is now I want you to live your lives worthy of that calling. And I don't have time to break it all down because in chapter 4 he gives more specific instructions. But number two, he called, he encouraged them to walk worthy. Next, turn to chapter three and verse one. See, we're going fast here. Chapter three and verse one. Chapter three and verse one. Therefore, see, when we could no longer endure it, I mean, such yearning for these people. You know, what happened to, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you. And encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. No one should be shaken by the persecution. For you yourselves know what we are appointed to this. In fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know. So the third thing that he does is he encourages them in their persecution by reminding them this is, act, listen, this persecution is not some strange thing. Like Peter says in one of his letters later, don't consider it some strange thing that you suffer, 
right? This isn't some strange thing going on. He says, you know, we told you this is exactly what would happen. If you believe on Christ, the Jewish people aren't going to like you. The Romans aren't going to like you. The pagans who worship the gods of wood and stone and everything else, they're not going to like you. No one's going to like you. Everyone's going to persecute you if you really believe. And the fact that they had believed the truth and that the persecution came... As hard as persecution is, it actually became an encouragement because it was a manifestation of what they had been told from the Word of God that it was true. And may I say to you, nothing encourages a person more than hearing something and then seeing it happen. They heard this is what it was and then it became what they heard what it was and they knew it was real. That's encouraging. That was encouraging. So he encouraged them in the genuineness of their faith. He encouraged them to walk worthy. He encouraged them in their suffering. Fourth thing, turn to chapter 4 and verse 13. Here he encourages them with what? That the Lord's going to come again. First century, right? When he first went there, he had to convince them that it was Christ's ministry actually to suffer and die. It's not a strange thing that Messiah died. It was prophesied that Messiah would die. It happened exactly as the Bible says that it would. Right? But Messiah is still going to come. He's going to come again. And so he encourages them with this message. Chapter 4 and verse 13. Listen to this. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Because some of them had died. Maybe natural causes, but I think the implication is that some of them died from the persecution that they faced. We believed in Jesus and people killed us. Well, Paul's like, I don't want you to be ignorant about that. I want you to know the truth, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, you believe that, right? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, God, I'm an apostle and God told me this. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. These are Jesus' own words that as an apostle he has commanded me to share with you. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, yes, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. (laughs) And thus we shall always be with the Lord, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Amen. Yes, you're being persecuted and suffering. Yes, some of your brethren have died, but I don't want you to be ignorant about that. It's exactly how it's supposed to go. If Jesus died and rose from the dead, don't you think that he's going to leave them dead? He's going to descend, and when he descends, they're going to rise first. And then those of us who happen to be alive until that day, we're going to be raptured out of here and we are going to meet them in the air with Jesus and we'll be with the Lord forever. There's your encouragement. There's the encouragement for the true Christian. 
The, encur- the encouragement for the true Christian isn't about comfort and safety in this life. The encouragement for the true Christian is the day is coming when I'm going to see him. I'm going to be with him and we're going to be with him forever and ever. Wherever he is, there I will be. That's the encouragement for the Christian. Hallelujah. Yeah. One more thing. Chapter 5 and verse 12. So he encouraged them in the genuineness of their faith. He encouraged them to walk worthy. He encouraged them in their suffering. He encouraged them concerning those who had died and the coming day of the Lord. And finally, he encourages them in their church life. Chapter 5, verse 12. We urge you, brethren... Back up a verse, verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you're also doing. They're already comforting each other and edifying one another. He said, you just keep it going. That's why we have to gather and assemble, to encourage each other. As Hebrews says, even so much the more as you see his day approaching. Comfort each other and edify one another just as you're also doing. And, and in addition to that, we urge you, brethren, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. When someone's like leading a ministry or preaching, teaching in the word of God, Esteem them highly because that encourages them. And then they stay true and faithful. And when they are strengthened by the love of the people, they stay true and faithful. And that helps many other people to stay true and faithful. Amen? Amen? We're a team. We're a body. We're a family. We don't do any good tearing each other down. We do tremendous eternal good building each other up, especially those who are over you in the Lord, those who admonish you in the Lord. Esteem them very highly in love. Whether you like them or not, esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. Because if their work suffers, everybody suffers. Wisdom. Be at peace among yourselves. Such a simple admonishment. Five encouragements. He encourages them in the genuineness of their faith. He encourages them to walk worthy of the Lord. He encourages them in their suffering. He encourages them concerning the day of the Lord and those who had died before them. And he encourages them in the life of their church. That's what they were. They were a church. And church life is important. Amen? All right. Boy, there's so much more I could say. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to receive, believe, and put into practice for your glory all of these things. 
Thank you for all of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.